with you today. Thank you, Pastor Joseph, for the invite. And uh, I hold your dear pastor in very high regard. I, I first learned of uh, Pastor Joseph years ago from a friend of mine. We were both, uh, at the time, letter carriers in the Postal Service, and uh, we both have since retired. And, and uh, he spoke to me about this very gifted young man, and he said, you're going to want to learn about him. And that's, you have the privilege of having him now as your pastor. So um, you have a rare gift. It says in Ephesians chapter 4 that the Lord gives gifts to his church in the form of pastors and teachers. And, of course, you have received that. So uh, let me know if you can hear me okay, and uh, I will project out my voice, hopefully, unto edification. Well, let's turn uh, one, one further bit of in introduction um, Married, I'm married to Debbie. We have nine kids, 22 grandchildren, 23 is on the way, <laughs> and uh, one son serving as a missionary in Indonesia. Um, the rest, well, six are in the Grand Rapids area. One's Madison, Wisconsin, one in Adrian uh, down near Toledo, and uh, they're all healthy and well. Uh, most of them do need the Lord, I say sadly, but God is merciful and gracious, and while there's life, there's hope, correct? And that's all we have. We just cling to the Lord to bring our children to him in time. Well, let me read to you, turn your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 8, verse, beginning at verse 5. And if you've got your bullets in handy, you can put a place marker there or in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 7. We're going to look at, look at both these passages this morning as they, they weave in together. Uh, the Gospels often have... Uh, the same story told in slightly different ways in the Gospels, and this is the account of the centurion, and Matthew and Luke tell us about him, and they both bring out some very fascinating and interesting uh, details about this, um, this dear man. Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. Matthew chapter 8, we'll begin the reading at verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those following him, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Then Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Now when he concluded all of his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a servant, a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him and was sick and ready to die, so when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. 
And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built our, us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but to say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well, who had been sick. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your precious and holy word. We thank you that you have given it to us. What a great gift that you have given us a faithful, reliable, accurate, unerring guide to guide our footsteps through this difficult world and into the next. We thank you for our precious Lord Jesus. We thank you for the way he exhibited his kindness and his power and his grace and his mercy in this passage. And we thank you for that power that is available for us today. We thank you, our Father in heaven, that you have promised that you will bless your word. Where two or three are gathered together in your name, there you are in the midst. And we pray that you would be in our midst even today. And that you would take your precious word home to every heart and that you would meet every need, and that you would bless all of your children and encourage them in their pilgrimage along the narrow way that leads to life, and that you would be pleased, if it be your will, to draw out of the darkness under the bondage of the devil, that you would save sinners who are yet lost and in their sins. We pray that you would meet with us and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I've often been just amazed at how our affections can be drawn out sometimes in good ways and sometimes not so good. And I'm thinking of the way our hearts can be wrapped up with a pet and how our affections can, we would just weep buckets of tears once that pet uh, passes on. They don't ever live very long, do they? And then, you know, teenagers can be very infatuated with someone very quickly, and it's not always a very safe thing. The Bible gives us several examples of this, uh, just two that came to my mind as I was preparing there's that powerful example, sad example in 2, Kings, 2 Samuel 13 of King David's son Amnon becoming infatuated with his half-sister Tamar. And then in Genesis 34, the Shechemite man becomes quickly falls in love once he catches sight of Jacob's daughter Dinah in Genesis 34. And these are sad examples of what happens when there's an unprincipled affection that draws out. But in our passage, there's a very amazing affection this kind of love between a centurion and a servant that is just very heartwarming. It's really very, very precious. And I hope I can convey some of the beauty of it to you today. And it seemed to me that the passage in Matthew, which is where we'll primarily be today, divides out along seven basic scenes that I see here. And the first is this, this aspect of the pleading people, the pleading people. And I say people not centurion, because obviously there's more, more than one person doing some begging here. And it's, that's why we read the Luke 7 passage as well. 
Well, what is the setting of these pleading persons? And well, they're living in this lovely little seaside town called Capernaum. It's right at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And they say it was just a lovely place, as most lakeside places are, especially in the temperate climate there in Israel. It would have been a beautiful place. And so this is where, as Matthew chapter 4 tells us, that Jesus had moved after he had been rejected by his own folks there in Nazareth. And so he goes and he settles in, in Capernaum, and it appears that even though John 1.44 says that Peter and Andrew were from Bethesda originally, it appears that now they're living in Capernaum. And it says there in Mark chapter 1, after Jesus cast the demon out of that synagogue service, that they go immediately to the house of Peter and Andrew, and there Peter's wife's mother, his mother-in-law, is sick, and he, he raises her up and heals her from her fever. So it appears that Capernaum is the home base of Jesus during most of his time on earth where he's ministering. It, it just seems like because so much of the epic conclusion of his ministry happened in Jerusalem, it seems like that's where he spent most of his time in Jerusalem. But no, he did spend most of his time, the vast majority of his time, in and around the Sea of Galilee, especially the hub being Capernaum right there on the north shore of that little lake. And so this is where we find and pick up the story as he's basically coming down off the mount where the Sermon on the Mount took place, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And he's come down, he heals the leper, the very first miracle after the Sermon on the Mount. There are three or four more miracles in chapter 8, but we'll fo focus our attention on what he does here in this passage in Matthew 8, beginning at verse 5. But it's interesting, not passing too quickly over this, matter of where Jesus is because it is a fulfillment of prophecy. As it says uh, in Matthew chapter 4, it says, for, verse 14, that might be fulfilled what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and so forth. So this is a great comfort to us because this is part of the fulfillment of what Messiah would be and would do. And, and even where he would live had been prophesied. And so here Jesus is fulfilling these prophecies. And this should encourage us that the Bible clearly tells us that even where he lived is a fulfillment of the Lord's, uh, of the prophecy, describing what Messiah would be, what he would do, and where he would live. And so for those that might have struggles with knowing, is the Bible reliable? Is it something that I should place my whole faith and trust in? Here's just one more of those little jewels that should encourage your heart, that our Lord is telling us the truth. The Bible is, is true from cover to cover. All these fulfilled prophecies are just amazing ways to build us up in our faith and to cause those who are not sure of placing their faith in Christ, here's just one more evidence that the Bible is reliable. So now we come from this setting of Capernaum to the people that approach our Lord. And Matthew tells us that the centurion came, but of course Luke fills in the details. And actually, he sends these elders, these Jewish leaders, to come and ask Jesus for this wonderful miracle that he wants so very badly. And they say, Luke 7, verse 5, this very interesting comment. For he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now that is amazing because the Jews, of course, hated Gentiles, but they especially hated the occupying Roman army. 
that was basically holding them captive. They were free to do many, many things, but they weren't completely free as if they had their own king. And so he, this is really very, very remarkable. It, it's, uh, it's just is an indication that this man, this centurion, had been studying and thinking about the Jewish faith and watching, and, and, and this had to have happened well before Jesus came along to build a synagogue. That would have taken many, many months, if not years, because of the difficulty of building with stone, as there were very few trees. Most of the buildings were stone back in those days. I've, had, I've heard even people speculate that really Joseph's father was more of a stonemason than he was a carpenter. I, it's open for debate because of the fact there weren't many trees there. But uh, be that as it may, this man truly did love the, the Jewish faith and was like a Jewish uh, convert to, to Judaism. We don't know how far his knowledge led him, but when you examine all the data that is here, it's quite remarkable. It sounds like he has really been given the new birth when you add up all these wonderful details. So the first thing is he tells these elders and he says it through them, Lord. Come, please come, I have a servant. So that, that's a really good way to start, isn't it? Anytime you approach the master, you want to use a, a respectful term, Lord, and he honors the Lord. And then he pleads. This word means to beseech or to appeal. Same very, 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 very same word in that classic passage, Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. Very same word used here. I plead with you, I beseech you, please come and have mercy and um, and heal my sick slave. So we see the, the pleading people. So we see both it's the centurion and then these elders, and they're in hearty agreement. They're giving Jesus evidence that this is a good man. You should do this, Lord. He's a really great man. We admire him. He's been good for our city. He's been good for our faith. But then we come in the second place to the sick slave. Now Matthew calls him a a servant, but it's a type of word that means a boy or a child. And it's often, most often translated boy. I have a boy. But Luke uses the typical word for slave that's like 140 some odd times. I looked it up. Sorry, I don't mean to be too many details. But that word for slave is used most of the time. And that's not what Matthew uses. He uses the word boy. So when you put, and this is why it's so beautiful to look at both passages. So when you put them together, what you have is you have a boy slave, you have a young man, maybe a teenager, maybe someone younger than that. And so that starts to make sense when you realize this centurion has very longing, deep affections for this, this boy, this child. He's probably been born into his family. His parents are probably part of the, the, the household slaves that uh, take care of the needs of the centurion and his, and his soldiers. And he probably saw him from birth and he's raised up in the home and it's sort of like a little pet for him. It's uh, maybe a little bit like Joseph in Potiphar's house back in Egypt. And he began to see, you know, here's this ruddy, handsome, very, very smart teenage boy. And he's doing so well and he's so polite and respectful. What's not to like? And so he, his heart is just drawn out in love. And then suddenly, sadly, he, he becomes dreadfully ill. And so Matthew calls him a boy or a, a child and Luke calls him a slave. We see those put together. He's a young servant in the house. Matthew says he's paralyzed dreadfully tormented and Luke says he was sick and ready to die so it's a very dire situation that this poor young man is facing so it's understandable why he's become attached his heart is drawn out in affection it's it's a lovely little child and so 
as you begin to build the case for what kind of man this centurion was, you see his politeness towards Jesus, calling him Lord. You see his faith in Jesus saying, you know, I think Jesus can help us here. And then you see this tender way that he treats someone far beneath him in status in his home. And you know how difficult it is sometimes. Uh, it's very, very easy to be polite and respectful to the boss. And it's pretty easy to show some modicum of respect towards our equals. And, but if there's an annoying person that's way beneath you and standing, that's a little more difficult to show love, isn't it? When somebody is way, way down the social order um, and maybe they're, they're annoying you, a, chi a child can be annoying at times um, because they just haven't matured yet. And, and yet here's this mighty centurion, an officer and leader of men who knew probably a hundred different ways how to kill a man based on the way they trained the, the uh, Roman soldiers and the legions back in those days. And yet he has this tender affection for this little boy. And so the English standard says about his, his, uh, the way he describes the boy, he says he was highly valued by him. The New King James, I like that, it says who was very dear to the centurion. New American says he was highly regarded the word means to honor, to prize, to consider something to be precious. So this is the way the centurion thought about this young man. And so that's our second head, the sick slave. Next is we see the ready, respo the ready response of our Savior. In Matthew 8, verse 7, and Jesus simply said to him, I will come and heal him. And I just love that, don't you? Because here is a Gentile Roman soldier making the request, and Jesus doesn't hesitate. He doesn't say, well, as soon as you become uh, a Jew, or as soon as you get circumcised, or as soon as you stop owning slaves, for goodness sake, how could I come to your house as a slaveholder, or as being a Gentile? You, he could have said, like Peter, when uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 requests him to come, and Peter says, I, I can't go there, and of course the Lord Gives him the vision of the food, the animals in the, sh in the sheets coming down from heaven. And Jesus said, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And uh, so he goes. And, but <laughs> even when he shows up at Cornelius' house, he still says, well, you know, I'm not really supposed to be here. I mean, come on, Peter. <laughs> Jesus said it's okay. And so, but Jesus doesn't do that. Isn't it amazing? And I just love the openness, the quickness, the readiness to come. There's no hesitation. There's no uncertainty. There's no equivocating. He, he doesn't say, well, he's a Gentile and he owns slaves and he's not a Jew and, and uh, all of that kind of thing. He doesn't say, well, you know, you're a soldier and you're a bloodthirsty guy. You probably killed a thousand men. I mean, how else could he have been a centurion? He, he, if he was a slack soldier, he would not have been promoted up the ranks. He had to be quite good at what he did. He had to have some leadership qualities, and he had to have some certain degree of ruthlessness to him. Otherwise, the, the Romans would not have promoted him to the centurion level. But Jesus didn't use any of those things as an impediment to him coming. Uh, no matter, you know, uh, this is a great comfort, isn't it? No matter what our background may be, he is willing to come to those who will humble and bow the knee to him. Well, that's our third heading, the ready, the ready Savior. Next, we see the great faith of the centurion. And this is really the kind of the key to the passage, isn't it? Here we see 
Jesus is highlighting this man. And he brings out something in particular, and, and um, we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, what does he do? First, he says, I am not worthy. He says it once in Matthew. He says it twice in Luke's account. I am not worthy. Now, how often do you hear people say that? We mustn't, just because we're familiar with the story, we really need to slow down and just let that simmer and sink into your heart. I am not worthy. Now, it's one thing for a slave to say that. We would expect the slave to say that. We would expect even a child say, you know, although that's not really the language of children because they're, you know, not typically humble. But, you know, they should be because they don't have authority, they don't have power, they don't have abilities yet. And yet, here's this man of great ability, of great rank, and he doesn't play that. He doesn't say, well, like um, Naaman, you know, when, when he comes to see Elisha to be healed, and Elisha doesn't even come out, and he sends Gehazi out instead. He said, well, I thought he'd come out and wave the hand. You know, Gehazi, or Naaman was not in the position that this centurion was. Now, he got there by the Lord's grace and mercy. I'm very thankful he decided after a couple of his servants said, my father, well, why don't you go do this? You know, it's not so hard. If he had asked you to do a great thing, you would have done it. But simply go dip into Jordan. Anyway, here's this. Now, this, this is a sign of real grace, is it not? This is one of those great, unmistakable characteristics of a child of God. He says, I am not worthy. And Matthew Henry says, the greatest of men must turn beggars when they come to have dealings with Christ. The greatest of men must turn beggars. So the president and the, and the governor and the mayor and the company owner and the billionaire, they all are beggars in front of the Lord Jesus. So I am not worthy. I just love that. I am not worthy for you to come to my house. And so he says, and then of course in the Luke account, he says, that's why I didn't even come. I, did, I just didn't feel worthy to even approach you out in the open air. And so I sent the elders instead. But now he gives the reason for why he was so humble. It's sort of the heart of his faith, this, this idea, this logic of authority. And so you remember how he, he says, I have men, I'm under authority. I have men under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, come, and he comes. And, you know, that whole uh, part of the narrative. And so he responds that, I, and evidently he's saying this. I've witnessed what you have been doing. I understand that you are large and in charge. You are the boss. I understand that because that's the way I have to live. A man, not only am I under authority, but I am authority over others. And I see that in you. I just know that's the case. And so even though Jesus is very, very early in his ministry, just came down off the Sermon on the Mount and had done very little. Maybe he heard that uh, Jesus had turned the water into wine, which was, they say is the first miracle that he performed. That word will get around and those kind of things. And so then he was thinking about, it's almost like he was thinking after he sent out the first delegation of the elders of the Jews. Then he had this epiphany, he had this eureka moment. He had this shocking statement, the slapping of the forehead. He said, oh, he doesn't even have to come. What am I thinking? What a, what a fool I've been. He says, I'll send out the second group of guys, and it calls him his friends, he sends out, um, and says, Jesus, you don't even have to come. I just realized you can just say the word because you're, you're powerful. You've got this authority. Everybody can see it. And so he, he says, you don't need to come. Just 
say the word. Now that's a, that's a wonderful epiphany. That's a wonderful a eureka moment that this man had. Wouldn't it have been wonderful if all of Judaism had seen that, what he did? But they were blind to it. And so the Lord is beginning to open his heart, like Lydia in Acts 16, where it says he, he opened her heart to believe the gospel. And so here he's opening this dear man, and he says, all you need to do is speak the word. So here's our fourth, what I call my fourth head, the great faith of the centurion. That's our fourth. So we've seen the pleading people, the sick slave, the ready savior, and this great display of faith by the centurion. And now we come fifthly to our marveling savior. Matthew 8.10, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I haven't seen such great faith, not even in Israel. Jesus is amazed at his faith. Now, isn't it interesting? Jesus does not say, wow, what amazing humility. And that would have been true because he was manifesting that I am not worthy. He could have said, um, I, I, he could have said, wow, what amazing compassion. Look at the way he cares for his slave. He really loves this little fellow. He wants him to be better. It means a lot to him. He could have spoken about this man's love. He could have spoken about his humility and, and the gentle spirit that he was manifesting. But, or Jesus could have said, aren't you impressed by his generosity, all this money he's given to, the, to, our, to our faith in building this meeting place for the Jews to gather for worship? But no, here's why this passage is so critical. This is the critical key point. It says in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, without faith, it's impossible to please God because we must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so this matter of faith is no little thing. Jesus highlights it. He puts the spotlight in it. He shines bright lights. He emphasizes it. And one of the ways that he emphasizes it is he stops in his track. And I love the way that Luke puts it. Um, yeah, Luke 7, verse 9. He marveled at him, turned around, and said to the crowd, and you know what he said, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Now, he really is impressed by this. And isn't it wonderful? There are things, you know, sometimes when you're really, really low and you're discouraged, you might think, I cannot do anything to please the Lord. Well, this sure did, and he is pleased every time you say, I don't understand why the marriage turned out the way it did. I don't understand how God can be sovereign and I'm yet responsible, human responsibility, God's sovereignty. I don't understand the hypostatic union between Christ as God and, and he's fully God and yet fully man. I don't understand the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I don't understand eternal, uh, eternal damnation in hell. You, you'd think, well, maybe a couple of million years would be fine and then we'll let him out. I know it's not going to be like that. Well, all these objections that people have, and this is why faith is so critical, because it says, I believe and I trust that you are a good God, and I'm going to bow the knee to you, even though I can't figure all these other complicated things out, because the Lord never told us to figure all those complicated things out. He revealed it to us in Scripture. He said, this is the God with whom you have to do. Believe it and trust him and do what he says, and he'll take care of the rest. And so faith is so critical. Do you see that, dear ones? I hope that blesses your heart. That's why he stopped and he turned around and he said this to the crowd. It's just amazing. I haven't seen such great faith. And that's a sad comment, isn't it? I mean, that's a rebuke to these people. They should have been embracing him like the centurion, 
loving him, believing him. And so he praises their faith. He doesn't praise his humility or his generosity or his love for the Jews or his love for the lowly servant, but he praises his faith. And faith is used around 243 times in the New Testament. And the phrase justified by faith is used at least seven times in our New Testaments. It's so very critical. And this is one of the reasons why you have a peculiar statement in the book of Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 21.4, uh, there's, there's a little phrase at the beginning, but the second half of that little verse says, and the plowing of the wicked, it is sin. Isn't that an interesting thing? The plowing of the wicked, kind of a nondescript normal activity. Why is the plowing of the wicked sin? Because they don't do it out of faith and gratitude to God. They don't thank God for the dirt. They don't thank God for the rain. They don't thank God for the sun. They don't thank God for their mule or their oxen. They don't thank God for their plow. They don't thank God for anything. And that's why the, the, the baking of the lovely meal by the housewife, it is sin. If it's done from the heart that doesn't love the Lord Jesus. And that's where faith comes in. The housewife and the husband and the child that wants to follow the Lord says all these little duties, whether it's plowing or baking the cake or doing my homework, I'm doing it with an eye towards God because I believe through faith this is my duty and this is what he wants me to do right now. And the Lord just loves that. He loves that. He loves it when we submit and say, I don't know what else I can, I'm supposed to do in this life, but right now I have these things set before me like last night, I had my duty to prepare that message. For you, for most of us, tomorrow, we're off to work. I retired from the post office, and now I'm driving a semi. And so it's been, it's been a blessing. So we all start right there. And that's where the Lord wants us to begin. Just trust me, do my duty, be a witness, live a godly life, obey the scriptures, do what I know to do, and leave the unknown and the uncertain in the hands of God. And so... Here is an interesting lesson that I want to press to your hearts right at this moment. In Matthew 8, verse 1, starting this whole section out, it says large crowds were following him. We have every reason to believe that that large crowd was still with him after the healing of the leopard, leper, rather, as they were approaching the encounter with the centurion. It was still a huge group of folks. And I just think it's so important for us to remember our Lord's turned and instructed these people what he saw and what he appreciated about the centurion. You know, that is a thread of truth that goes through the Bible. For example, Paul does this in many different places. And one, one place he does this so amazingly is in 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 4 where he says, So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. For your patience and faith and your persecutions, tribulations that you endure. In other words, it's not just enough for Paul to bow the knee and say, Lord, thank you for the Thessalonians. <laughs> They're doing a great job. No, he writes and he says, Thessalonians, I just wanted you all to know. I'm telling everybody about you. Now, that's biblical. And that's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I see something that's really, really good. And I want to tell you. And, of course, the opposite is true, too. How many times does Jesus and Paul warn us to avoid certain false teachers and be on the guard for wolves in sheep's clothing and false brethren and false apostles and all the other things about all the lies that were being propagated even during the time of the apostles? And so let us remember 
it is very important not just to thank God in your own prayers for good things that you see others doing, but encourage their heart by telling them that they are doing well. And then tell others about these that are doing well, because that's what the Bible shows us as a pattern beginning even with the Lord Jesus. Well, then we hasten on to this shocking pronouncement as uh, we've seen the, um, the pleading people, the sick slave, the ready savior, the great display of faith, the marveling savior, and now in verse 11, the shocking pronouncement. He goes right from, it's, it's interesting how he, his mind, the infinite mind of the savior flows. He says, I haven't seen such great faith, even in Israel, and almost without taking a breath, he says, and I say to you, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom. But, and here's a very frightening warning, the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just check the time just to make sure I don't go too long. And so this is a very sobering warning that Luke does not give us. Interesting, because Luke was writing mainly to a Gentile audience, and Jesus and Matthew, of course, Matthew was writing to mainly a Jewish audience, and so he is throwing out this, this amazing warning. He says, Jews, the Gentiles are coming. They're coming from all over. Just like this, this uh, centurion, they're coming from the east, they're coming from the west, and they're going to sit, and they're not going to be out in the outer room. They're not going to be out in the yard looking through the windows. They're going to be in the dining room sitting down with the forefathers of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom. They're going to be right in the family room, right in the kitchen, right there with all the others who love the truth and who have bowed the knee to the Savior. But, and then notice this amazing title, the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say those who thought they were truly saved. He doesn't say those who thought they were Jews. He gives them this amazing title, sons of the kingdom. Even they will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is just an astounding statement. And now you would think that all the Jews would gather around and say, that is really scary. What did you mean by that, Jesus? You know, he was so approachable. They could come up and tell him, ask him anything. You know, I've often wondered, three times I've counted, I think, where Jesus warned the 12 that one of them would betray him. And in John 12-ish, I think, I didn't put it in my notes, I think is where Jesus says, and one of you is a devil? Now you would think everybody's jaw would hit the floor, all would hit their knees, all would come crawling to Jesus and say, a devil is in our midst? Is it me? Of course, at the Last Supper, John 13, they're all asking, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? Now, isn't it interesting that Jesus uses that technique three different times? One of you will betray me. One of you is a devil. And the point I'm trying to make is, why wouldn't you come up to him and say, is it me? I mean, I really want to know. And I want, I'm not going to leave until you tell me. <laughs> and so here he says the sons will be cast out into outer darkness, eternal damnation. You would think everybody would say, I ain't leaving until I find out how, how can I make sure I'm not that guy or I'm not that lady. And so he shocks them with this, but evidently they weren't shocked very much. But the problem was so many of them were so proud and arrogant with their birthrights. They thought, well, I did get circumcised and I've observed the dietary rules and I, I've gone to synagogue and I've offered the proper sacrifices and all the rest. 
And Jesus says, so many of you will be cast out. So many of you will be lost. So many of you who come faithfully are not saved. And of course, that's the way it is in our day too, isn't it? So many go to church. They haven't ever been born again. They're not given the gospel as they should be. Or even in churches where the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, where they know they must be repentant towards God and have faith in our Lord Jesus and bow the knee and confess their sin and follow and look at the Beatitudes as the attitude of what Jesus wants out of us. Blessed are those poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the meek. And there's our centurion. He was a meek guy, wasn't he, even though he was a soldier. And they look at that and they should think, I'm not like that. But Jesus says, i got to be like that. How can I become meek? I'm so proud. How can I become a mournful person over my sin? Because I don't, I don't feel bad for my sin at all. I just think, what? It's, a big deal. it's no big deal. But Jesus says, it is a big deal. And when you feel how big a deal your sin is, you will begin to mourn over it, Jesus said in Matthew 5, I think verse 6. Well, anyway, this was just it just kind of went right over their heads like so much of Jesus's teaching they just did not pay attention to the shock of what he just said so there's the shocking pronouncement and then finally the answer to prayer point number seven and Jesus said to the centurion go your way as you have believed so let it be done for you and his servant was healed that hour well time is slipping away let me uh, wrap up with a few uh, applications that puts the horse, uh, the shoe leather to the ground and makes it practical, hopefully, for you to think about and meditate as you go to your, to your homes today. Once again, the main issue is the centrality of faith. We've talked about that already, but I just wanted to gently rub it home and massage it into your hearts. Jesus highlights it, whatever G Jesus highlights, we should highlight as well. And so uh, faith says, Lord, I trust you. No matter how heartbreaking my life and, un, and difficult my life and how, how, how just what a mystery my life has been, whatever it might be, why did all these things happen? All the why questions, Jesus said, just leave them with me. Uh, he says in, was it Psalm 55, 22, cast, uh, cast your burdens on the Lord and he will sustain you. And Peter, of course, quotes that as well. And Jesus wants you to say, I do not have understanding of how all these things work out but lord i know you are worth my trust i'm going to trust in you no matter what i trust in you but we also see here in our passage some of those critical components of what true faith is made up of and the most important one that we see here is humility and that is so far from the way we were born into this world isn't it we are not humble and feeling unworthy by nature. Most people think, well, yeah, I'm, I'm worth whatever you want to give me. I, I deserve it. And that is so far from the attitude of what God wants. Isaiah 66, verse 2, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But to this one will I look on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Now that was the centurion, wasn't it? He was of a poor spirit in his own estimation, contrite in his heart although his sins are not mentioned. But he certainly trembled at the word of Jesus, and he thought, Jesus, you have all power. Absolutely, you do. And oh, how few people take Jesus seriously. Serious enough that not only does Isaiah 66, 2 use that little phrase, tremble at my word, but it's either verse 3 or verse 4 uh, of Isaiah 66 uses that same expression again. These folks who tremble at my word. 
And God loves that. He loves that attitude of my knees are knocking together. I'm nervous. I'm shaking because the, what you're saying to me is so incredibly profound. I, I don't want to mess this up. I just want to get it right so very badly. Because to add to the trembling, the child of God then realizes that James 4, 6 and 1 Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 5, quote, uh, Proverbs 3.34, when they say, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. That phrase is used three times in the Bible, once in Proverbs, once in James, and once in 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So this is our second application is I need to repent wherever I've sensed that I'm not humble. I don't have a feeling of unworthiness. When I, you know, when we look at our houses and our yards and our lovely cars, even my little 2014 Dodge Dart out there with a dented hood, I think it's, it's, it's fun to drive and it gets me where I got to go and it's not covered with rust and, and the heat works and the AC works and what's not the like, you know, about my little car. <laughs> and uh, it's just a blessing. All these things that the Lord has given us, healthy wife, healthy kids, healthy grandchildren, a church to go to, a Bible to hold in my hand, a job, money to buy food, all these things. I just feel so unworthy of God's mercies to me. And so this humility is so critical. Are we humble today as you ask yourself that question? Well, you can ask others. You can say, kids, to your parents, do you think I'm humble, mom and dad? What would your wife say, husbands, wives? What would your husband say um, if wife, you said, hubby, am I a humble wife and mom? Well, how about your children? You go to your little ones or even your adult kids. Do you, do you think mom is a dad is a humble person? That's a probing question, isn't it? Or even your co-workers, uh, your pastors. But in any case, we all have some repenting to do, don't we? We know our hearts. May the Lord grant us grace to repent where we need to. And the centurion sets the example. He sets a high bar, doesn't he? Three times he says, I am unworthy. Uh, the third <clears throat> lesson I see here is we see the law of kindness. The law of kindness. Here the centurion is so kind to his young slave. Are we like that to those who are, you know, maybe the person that mows our grass or some other person that does some menial little task for us? Um, you're, you're in a motel and you see the little lady cleaning the rooms. Are you sweet and gentle with that person? Somebody on the phone at this call service, you know, and they don't have a clue what your issue is, but you're, you're patient, you're long-suffering with that person on the phone. Uh, these are the laws of kindness that characterize the centurion, and the Lord says these things have to characterize us as well. Does the law of kindness govern us? And it's going to be on what I call the final ultimate exam on the last great day of judgment. Did you know that? Yep. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. Jesus is looking for six things that he mentions there. You remember the six? I was hungry. You gave me to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me to drink. I was naked. You clothed me. I was, uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, stranger, hospitality. You took me in. I was sick, he visited me in prison, and he came to me. He says those six to the goat, the, the sheep on the right hand, six things to the goats on the left, and they all say, Lord, when did we do that? And Jesus says to the sheep, when you did it to the least, you did it to me. And so what one word would characterize those six activities? It seemed like one other three or four words that might come to your mind, but the one that came to my mind is the word compassion. The Lord 
creates a compassionate heart when he saves you. And if you don't have a compassionate heart, probably not yet born again. And so you know what he's looking for. In fact, it's almost like the teacher that tells us what's going to be on the final. We always like that. Know these six things because it's going to be on the test. And the Lord is saying that to us in Matthew 25. These are going to be on the test. I'm going to be looking for these qualities, these characteristics, because that's what faith produces in a born-again child of God. It produces those six things, among other things, of course, but at least those six. And the neat thing about those six is even a second grader could do any one of those things, right? They could give a guy a glass of water, here's a, here's a cracker, you know, uh, you need a sweater, maybe I got one here in the closet, etc. And we can go to the sick neighbor next door and all of these things. So the centurion was compassionate for a slave. Jesus says this is true about all of his children. They're going to be compassionate. And so are you, are you feeling that in your heart? I want to be like that. I want to be a compassionate man or woman, boy or girl. I've, I'm done with those selfish days where all I think about is me, myself, and I. And I want to bow the knee to Jesus. And of course, there's ultimately only one way. Because we don't have the strength in ourselves to do these things. It only comes by the power of God when we cry out to him and say, Lord, save me. Save me from my pride, my selfishness, my being just un uncompassionate, uncaring about other folks. I want to be a truly loving person like this centurion. A man who could kill somebody in a hundred different ways, and yet he loves his little servant, and he shows compassion and love for the community, building a synagogue, and showing not doing this to earn salvation because God had put it in his heart. God had changed his heart, and God can change our hearts and make us willing in the day of his power. May the Lord bless this word to your hearts, draw you to himself if you're not his, and grant you faith and repentance and renewal if that's needed as well. Well, may the Lord bless this word to our good. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for teaching us so many things through the example of the centurion and the way our Lord Jesus interacted with him and the crowds and those who came to make this request. Our Father, we, we ask that you would forgive us for pride and lack of compassion has gripped us from time to time. We pray that you would forgive us for our lack of faith and unbelief. We say with, with the man there who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We pray that you will overwhelm us with your grace. Give us renewed faith to trust you, even with all the mysteries and the uncertainties and the heartbreaks that we have had to face in life. We, we trust you again. We acknowledge you are worthy to be followed, even if all else fails and we have no good but yet we have so many wonderful blessings in the midst of our sorrows and we just want to continue to thank you for those and trust you during the midst of all of our remaining uncertainties and the remaining difficulties that we face uh, whether it be financial shortfalls health struggles relational conflicts or god we trust you with all of these things we just ask please help us to behave honorably compassionately kindly, boldly, faithfully in the midst of all of our uh, epic, epics of life, all the things you call us to do, help us to be faithful. Draw the lost to you, make them willing in the day of your power, cause that many would find peace and love and joy in bowing the knee to Jesus, even today. In Jesus' name we pray.